Welcome to the Rit Nerds Podcast, episode number six. Tonight's a special episode as we welcome to the series our first guest, Jeff Alter from Florida. We recorded this episode back in March before the whole world decided to go crazy with the coronavirus, so we apologize the time it took to get it up and running and sent out to you guys, but we hope you enjoy it. And uh, here's a little introduction for Jeff, and then we'll get rolling. Jeff started his career in the fire service in 1976 as a volunteer firefighter and became a paid firefighter working at Martin County Fire and Rescue, then moving on to Marion County Fire and Rescue and finishing his career at Seminole Tribe Fire Rescue in 2015. He was a backstepper, a driver, a lieutenant, a battalion chief, a district chief, an assistant chief, and finally a deputy chief of operations. He spent 20 years on one of Florida's Type 1 incident management teams as a team safety officer, responding to wildfires and hurricanes and all sorts of other hazards. Recognizing the need around the state that something had to be done to get people back on track in training and believing in the RIT concept, he developed an idea of holding a statewide RIT competition at the Fire Rescue East Conference and to do it on the show floor. In 2012, Jeff helped start the Florida Rapid Intervention Operations Group, otherwise known as FROG, and they are now in their eighth year. The first year they had six departments compete. This year they had 30 teams and had to turn away four teams because of time constraints. If you haven't seen them, check out their Facebook page and for more information, uh, reach out and contact them. Their contact information's posted up on their Facebook page. And that's enough of me talking and let's get started. All right, well, we'll get started then. So uh, we'll just get started. First off, I'll, I'll welcome you on here, uh, Jeff. Jeff Alter lives down in Florida, runs the Florida Rapid Intervention Operations, uh, which is a great competition. Um, and we'll just, I won't, I won't do too much of an intro for you, Jeff. I'll let you introduce yourself. And uh, thank you for coming on and chatting with us today and this is kind of what we wanted to do is start getting other people with the same passion on here to, to chat with us and, and have the same discussion. Well, thank you, uh, uh, you and James, uh, thanks for inviting me. Uh, well, I'm, uh, I've been on the job or was on the job for 40 years, uh, started as a volunteer firefighter and then became paid firefighter and worked my way all the way through the ranks, done the hazmat, confined space, you know, all the, all the disciplines that, that uh, you can do, including uh, spending 20 years on a uh, type one Florida incident management team as the team safety officer responding to wildfires across the country, as well as hurricanes. I think from 1998 through 2015, I responded to every hurricane that ever was. <laughs> during that time frame that's uh okay so what what uh, obviously this is the rip podcast so what was the main driving factor that got you into rapid intervention the same way you're in it now well when uh as we know we in that if you're a hazmat responder you were always using the two in two out uh you know for a hazmat response if two guys went into an idlh then they're two out so i was very familiar with it and finally, NIOSH and NFPA and everybody started getting wind and they created the two in, two out rule for the fire service. 
they said, if we're doing it for hazmat, we should do it because of the amount of injuries and incidents that were occurring in the, on the fire side. And it is an IDLH also. So when that became the law of the land, the state of Florida, uh, the fire marshal adopted that program. So, you know, for my department that I was with at the time, it was very easy because everybody knew that we were doing it for our hazmat responses. It just became normal. But like all things in the fire service, uh, you know, firemen are really unique individuals, as we know, because we are one. But um, things happen, and it's like, oh, a shiny red object. And RIT became everybody, every instructor in the world that was teaching nozzle control or flashover. When RIT came in, everybody became a RIT instructor instantly, and they were the experts on it. And then within two years, right around 2004, 2005, what did we have in the fire service that became the next thing? Electric cars. So everybody switched from RIT to electric cars. Even though the most important thing that we do in the fire service for ourselves is RIT, because no one can save us but us. We're the only ones. A cop can't save you when you're in a building, the only one that can do it. And departments were getting so lackadaisical with it. They were doing it because their department SOPs or SOGs said so, and the state and the Fed said you did it. So you, you, did, you went through it. But who did they put on RIT? They put the guys that they didn't, you know, the last guy in was the RIT team. They're standing there, their, their coats are open, their packs are on the ground. They're standing there and they're PO'd because why? They didn't get nozzle time. And you see, you see that about it. And I always ask people, if you were in this building, and for God forbid something were to happen to you, whether you have a medical emergency or an equipment failure, how quick do you want somebody to come in and rescue you? And what's everybody's answer? Well, I expect them to be there before I hit the ground. Well, then why are you standing outside acting like an ass? <laughs> Don't you think that guy in, inside expects the same thing that you do? So we got away from uh, an awful lot. And uh, in 2007, I became the uh, chairman of the Florida Fire Chiefs Fire Service Instructors. And part of our job was creating uh, the training for the three conferences that they had. They have a general conference, they have an executive conference, and they have a safety and health conference. Hey, Ron. Hey, Jeff, how are you? Very good. Sorry for interrupting here. No, no problem. No, you're not. <laughs> What's up, Nathan? Not too much, man. Glad you can make it. Yeah, ran a little behind for you guys. Sorry about that. Oh, uh, that's okay. So hey, while I was doing this, one of the things that, uh, besides doing the uh, classes for these conferences, one of my charges was to start training uh, up in our panhandle of Florida, there's a lot of volunteer departments. So I hooked up with these two gentlemen, one was from the city of Orlando Fire Department, and one was from uh, uh, Scambia County Fire Department, and they were really, really good at written they were really, really good. And we traveled around the state teaching it. And as I was looking at things and we were teaching it, we realized that there is nothing, absolutely nothing out there anymore 
because if it wasn't for an electric car or smooth bore nozzle or something, nobody was talking about RIT. And we were planning uh, a conference for what we call Fire Rescue East, which is the biggest conference in the Southeast for fire apparatus and training that the chiefs put on. And I sat there and I, I was just thinking, what can we do to enhance RIT? And I came up with the idea that firefighters by nature are competitive as hell. So why don't we have a RIT competition? And I pitched it to the fire chiefs and that was in 2010. And they looked at me and they told me, well, I won't use the verbiage with what I was told. <laughs> um, but in, uh, after that conference, which was in Jacksonville, Florida, they moved from Jacksonville and they were going to Daytona to do the conference, move it further towards the middle part of the state. And uh, the new venue had two, uh, what's the word to use? Two convention centers. They were held together by a single corridor, but there was a uh, east side and a west side. Well, the east side, all the west side was bigger. So all your big apparatus, all your big people were there. And on, on, on the east side, they had the guy with the press on t-shirts and pink fire trucks, nothing against them. <laughs> so I lobbied the fire chiefs, executive board, their president and their executive director to let me have show floor space to do this competition. And they figured out a side out of mind. And we put it together. We grew from the three guys that I work, or the two guys that I work with, uh, the logistics chief came on board. Some of the people that were on my education committee came on board and we started out with six people. And in 2012, we ran the first competition, which we had six teams show up. Uh, this last year in, in 2020, we had 31 teams show up for the competition with a prize package for the winner of over 20 grand. Dang, that's awesome. Each, I mean, uh, some of our sponsors now uh, are, I don't know, I'm gonna put a plug in for municipal equipment company, but they're our main sponsor. They gave uh, 1010 helmets, uh, personal tick, fire boots, gear bags, straps, radio belts, everything. $4,000 per person, and they're a five-man team. So that was a $20,000 prize package for the winner. So it was, uh, we've, we've grown exponentially over the eight years that we've been doing this. And it's all because of the competitiveness. Oh, yeah. We, we when I designed the, uh, can I keep going, or do you want, you yeah. got another question? No, no, keep going. When we designed the maze, one of the things that we wanted to accomplish was we wanted the firefighters to learn from what we were doing, but we also wanted the spectator, the people that were standing around. So if you're blacked out, you know, using whether it's, you know, wax paper, press and seal or anything else, you can't see what's going on, but everybody's standing around you. But if you build the walls any higher than 30 inches, people can't see it. So what we did is the maze is built and our, our footprint is 48 feet wide, 24, uh, 40 feet deep. 
and it's split in two. So we have two mirrored courses and we start out with what we call the preliminaries. We have a nine skill competition on the first day that they have to make it through. And the reason why we do this is we use the same rip bag. Uh, they're allowed to use their, any air pack that they want, you know, uh, but the biggest thing is we have to make sure that these people are capable of doing the basics. So we don't allow the fancy sked boards or anything like that. It's all basic firefighting skills. And the reason why we wanted to emphasize that is that at any time, anybody can be a RIT responder. So you need mm -hmm. to use your tools. You need to understand how to do things. I, so, I love um, that statement the, the that you just made, Jeff. I'm sorry to run over you. No, no, go right ahead. I, I love that statement. It's one of the things we talk about frequently on here is that um, there's a lot of good equipment out there, but at the bare minimum, like you just said, anybody can be the RIT team at any time. And the statistics coming from Project Mayday these days are proving that, that a lot of interior crews are the first ones that are going to be there. And we can't delay any of the whatever the the move is going to be whether it's packaging and removal or some sort of assistance it needs to start right away and that absolutely yeah absolutely and that was that was the whole thing now if you carry wire cutters uh knives whatever it is you carry in your pocket you're allowed to keep black rip bag and everything it's all supplied for you so you take a team that comes from, let's say, Miami-Dade Fire Rescue, which has a ton of money. They can afford every bell and whistle. But you take a small rural department that has maybe 30 guys, they don't have the money to buy all that stuff. So they're going to be relying on basics, and the Miami-Dade's going to be relying on all the bells and whistles. It's not fair. So we eliminated that as part of the long-term discussion with all the the team members that we want this to be the basic skills that you need to be able to save one of your brothers or sisters. So the first skill is forcible entry. Now our first year we, <laughs> we had forcible entry and to see someone take eight minutes to get into one of the standard doors is sickening. <laughs> it's just sickening. Um, to see people have the worst techniques in the world. And the first year we realized that, oh my God, these guys are not training or their training officers should be lined up and shot. And I don't mean that <laughs> literally. But okay. Can we quote that for this episode? <laughs> well, we're not literally. But, you know, we're a lot looking of people at saying, think it, but Jeff you know, said when it. I was a training officer, I used to <laughs> listen. One of the things about being retired is you lose your filter. <laughs> <laughs> when I was a training officer, one of my lieutenants or lieutenants would come up all the time, or captains, they come up and say, Hey, chief, when are we going to start learning the advanced stuff? And I looked them square in the eye and I said, When you can do the basics without any flaws, then I'll teach you the advanced skills. We don't do the basics. 
it's not about getting inside and seeing fire and throwing water on it. Where most people screw up is between the time they get in the truck to the time they arrive on scene. They screw up every single time. They forget to get water. They forget a lot of 360. And they're behind the eight ball before they ever get off the truck. So those are basic skills that we should do. And it's the same thing in RIT. It's a basic skill that we should all have where you don't have to think about it. You should just, it should be natural. So, so if I can ask a question here, did you have sure. to change? Uh, and we asked some questions to you beforehand getting on here and uh, we're jumping around a little bit. One of the things you said you, you learned most, when I asked you what you've learned most over your eight years of doing this training is, is that lack of basic skills is, was one of the things that surprised you the most uh, during this competition. Um, did you have to change the competition at all in order for getting over that in terms of uh in terms of having to do a couple of hours or teaching in front of the competition to make sure it went smoothly or what, what did you have to do to combat that or do you just let teams struggle no no we definitely the whole idea of this was <clears throat> to make people better so if i don't believe in letting people do things wrong and then yelling at them or correcting them I believe in, uh, for lack of a better way to put it, like the video games. If you go through three stages of a 10 stage, stage four and you die, what happens? You go back to stage three until you get through stage four. Well, the way we should train, should train people is that when they make a mistake, we should stop them right there, correct it, bring them back to where they were doing good and let them start again and continue forward. I think anything else is negative reinforcement. You know, uh, so what we designed is we went back and we put together a hands-on training class that covered all the day before the competition. Uh, I shouldn't say this because maybe some of our competitors will hear this, but somewhere in our training, <laughs> Somewhere in our training, when we talk about, we, we start out with case histories. Uh, we usually do three or four case histories. Well, the cool thing from uh, the case histories is that's our final exam. One of those four is our final exam. We give them a hint, but we don't tell them it's a hint. Right. So, but we cover uh, firefighter CPR, we cover uh, firefighter, uh, all the things that, you know, for saving a firefighter while you're in there, uh, the conversions, the drags, how to get people through an opening, keeping their mask in place, you know, all, and we go through forcible entry. And one of the things that we've started to add is a IC component, because that's a very important. Uh, let me back up and say that for us, when we created this, one of the things we were trying to do is not only do the guys going in have to have a basic skill, but the incident commander has to have a basic skill. So all of our scenarios, that's why there's a five man team. The fifth man has to be a company officer level okay. and run command while they're on a scene. And basically they're the RIT team and he became the RIT commander. So he okay. has to, we, we actually 
uh, one of the nine gradings is the incident commander, whether he air man does his air management, whether he does his pars, whether he keeps up with his people and doesn't overtax them by every two seconds calling them on the radio, where you at, where you at, you know, that sort of stuff. So we look at the command side and we look at the guys inside. So there's two two-man teams that do the rescue. And then there's an incident commander that's isolated from the guys and the only communication he has or visual is over the radio. Okay. So, so that's could... very important to us as soon as the command. Jeff, he could see them while they're in the course or no? Yes. Oh, okay. the incident commander? Yes. No, he cannot see them. We seclude okay. him in another another area where he can't see anything. And do you so, have required benchmarks they the incident commander has to meet? Well, yes, there are required benchmarks such as PARs, air air pressure checks, uh, accountability of his people going through any of the hazards uh, that okay. are there, uh, and we don't really put a specific, but the first day the. But um, you don't expect someone to have a 10-minute par check when it's only going to last six minutes. But we right. do require them to do those things. Okay. Okay. Um, so just to wrap up sort of talking about frog uh, and that and then moving into some of your other questions there, Jeff, and a bit more discussion is so one thing I think was pretty cool is you guys are in the uh, international rescue competition this year, right? And potentially in it for future years, including Luxembourg. Yeah. Uh, uh, one of the gentlemen who is very uh, into that, they wanted to, the, the World Rescue Organization does a lot of uh, training around the world as as you're aware but it's all about saving civilians there's nothing no competition that is about saving firefighters so one of the things that we're doing this year at the end of october beginning of november is we were invited to do a uh, two-day program for the world rescue organization when it's held at miami dade fire rescue and it's sort of like an audition to see if if what we do, the world body likes it enough to make it part of the competition moving forward. Okay. So it'll be kind of interesting. One of the things that we've had to do is take our, our rules, uh, all the things about what we do and translate them into, which isn't hard today with the technology that we have, but we've had to transfer everything into uh, 14 different languages. So that, Whoa. you know, all the... <laughs> And the cool thing is, is that, uh, let's say a team from Japan, we are not changing what we do. They have to figure out what we do and do it under our rules. So we're okay. working on a few videos to show them, you know, what the competition is. And that's the cool thing is they do it the way we say we do it. We don't have to make it into them. We don't have to use their scenarios their equipment it's ours period and that's the cool thing about it and i'm looking forward to it because the way they've got it set up is they're going to have 10 teams from the states and 10 teams from 
uh, around the world so that we'll be able to do a lot of different training. Uh, one of the cool things is that we've had uh, people through our Facebook page uh, talk to me from Argentina, Peru, France, uh, Mexico, and we've done a lot of exchanges with them. Um, unfortunately, the kid that contacted me from Peru, they just lost the, the like two days before that, they just lost three bomberos oh. because they didn't have anything about RIT. So I scoured everything I had, you know, as far as PowerPoints and everything. He said, don't even worry about translating. He said, I can get it translated. And I, I must have sent him a, probably four gigabytes of training. Holy cow. They didn't have, any, they didn't have anything. Mm. So that's who's awesome. The, uh, who's the team to beat in eight years of doing it? Have you had a repeat team that's always, always at the top or? Actually, uh, yeah, there's one team that, that there's a lot of teams that get better over there. And there's, uh, there's a few like Boynton beach, for example, Boynton beach fire rescue down in the South. So, uh, but the cool thing is, is that the brotherhood that's come out of this uh, is the team share with each other. They've gone back, they built mazes similar to ours, you know, for training. And then they invite other departments around them and they're constantly sharing stuff. Um, so RIT is in, in the state of Florida, I can tell you, uh, with 31 teams, uh, scattered from the panhandle all the way down to the south. Uh, RIT is being done a lot. Um, we're doing a program in Ocala, a one-day program for them. Um, and the interesting thing is they did, they put it out on their Facebook page. And within three days, they already had 10 teams sign up. Wow. And they only have the 20 slots. You, you cut out on us there, Jeff, when you just started telling us about the uh, the beach, the Sunso Beach there. If you don't mind repeating it, please, and then we can what, about Boynton, that back in. Yeah, uh, Boynton Beach, uh, last year, they, they won uh, the Fire Rescue East competition, and they won the Fort Lauderdale Fire Expo. They're a really good team. Uh, some of the other teams that are good is Orlando, Ocala. Uh, there's so many of them. Uh, but usually first year teams do not do well. And this year we had a first year team make it to the finals, which is really good and play second in the finals. Oh, wow. Uh, which was really good. Uh, to relay a story to you, a team showed up and they, uh, their first year team and they were full of piss and vinegar and, uh, they made it through the preliminaries and their time was like 13 minutes. Well, that year, the time to beat was five minutes and 50 seconds. Wow. So oh. they didn't, they didn't come close and they, uh, after the competition is over, before we announce, you know, who's going to the finals, 
uh, we let them see their score sheets and they argued with us on everything. Well, huh. we finally calmed them down. They walked away. And uh, when we came back on Saturday, it was uh, the scenario. You're cutting out on us again. That had a hoarder house, the hoarder bubble ended up dying. And that was a scenario. And after the first team ran through it, the same kid that argued with me the day before calls me over and he goes, hey, chief, he says, uh, can I tell you something? I said, what's that? He goes, that's hard. And I said, well, our job is hard. And that's, you need to train to be here on Saturday. Everybody knows that you got to make it through the preliminaries to become part of the top five to make it to day two. And on day two, we recreate a line of duty death scenario from a a better outcome. You guys still there? Yeah, well, you're cutting in and out on us a little bit. We turned our videos off. You might, if, maybe if you can just turn your video off as well, Jeff, that will hopefully yep. clear it up a little bit. All right, I turned mine off. Does that work better? Hopefully. It just started All now. Right. I don't know if any cloud's moving in or something. But Blame Canada. <laughs> <laughs> South Park fans. I feel like you probably watch South Park, Ron. <laughs> <laughs> Only a few episodes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, Jeff, it cut out when you were starting to talk about the hoarder uh, scenario okay. with the the kid coming up to you and telling you that it was hard and and going from there. The the you know when he saw what was on day two, uh, he realized that they were woefully in, ineffective in uh, their writ skills uh, because. We, we make the scenario as difficult as possible. And you really want to get to day two because that's where, you know, the rubber meets the road. That's where you really find out if you've got the skills. On day one, there, when you come on the course, you're masked up so you can't see. But we don't sequester anybody. So we have people that are standing around and the whole object of of not sequestering them during the preliminaries is the fact that they get to watch other teams do great things and do bad things. And you know, that you know, as well as I do, we can learn from both. And that's what the day one is about. But once you get to day two, we bring them in, we take away their phones, their super watches, everything. And when they come out onto the course, they're blacked out. So they have no idea. And the only way that they know what's going on is by the mayday call that they hear. And it's, it's, it's super intense. This year's scenario was uh, two firefighters searching. One firefighter fell through a floor and the other one was half in a hole and half out, but he was conscious. And they had a, had to get him you had to get both uh both firefighters out so it was uh pretty intense we built a platform that was eight feet by eight feet and was 48 inches off the floor 
and we okay. built a staircase and they had to go up and down, up and down a staircase, you know, getting the victim in and out and everything. So it was, uh, it was pretty intense. Jeff, if you don't mind, um, speaking about the course really quick, noticing, um, in the videos and the photos that the walls only appear to be what, maybe four feet tall. Um, they're actually it, only 30 inches tall. Okay. Does, does that create any issues for during the competition? Uh, the only issues we've ever had is um, people re leaning over, uh, spectators leaning over so that they could get the picture of a lifetime <laughs> uh, sort of thing. Uh, but yep. no, it, it, we made it that way so that people could see exactly what the guys were doing whether it was a good technique or a bad technique. And that was the reason for the 30 inch space. Right. Yeah. I always wondered looking at the photos, you know, I'm like, cause we, we have um, essentially a, uh, a mock uh, multifamily dwelling floor um, in our firehouse. And we just turned the plywood on its side. So we have four feet and um, mm -hmm. those guys, bulldoze those walls as, as strong as we could bull, build them sometimes so i was just curious you know the, being blacked out or um blindfolded essentially dragging a down victim how that all holds up it uh well this particular maze this is our second one uh after the uh first two years uh i decided that i needed i think i lost you again okay there you are Got now me. okay after the first two years, we decided we needed to rebuild the maze because uh, we built the first one hastily. So we took the our off yep. season, and uh, we this one here now is six years old. It's been through twelve competitions, and it's still holding up. Uh, wow! It's uh, it basically the inside is masonite, quarter inch masonite that's shiny you know on the shiny side so it's smooth and yep. it, it's holding up we've we've had to do a couple of replacements especially around the wall breach where the guy you know because they're masked up they don't hit the uh the drywall they hit the sides and they you know throw a halligan through the or an axe through the side but you know for the most part uh it's held up really really well it's six years old now and we'll probably that's get pretty good three four years out of it Nice. Um, yeah, I love I loved how I mean going way back to the beginning. I love when you talked about getting people into writ. I always find us so hypocritical uh, when it comes to writ. We go out there, tell the public, especially if we're asking for a budget increase, they don't want to raise taxes because they don't need us. And well, there's never been a fire in my house, and we're we're always telling the public, oh well, you know, we're here just in case for your insurance policy. It's not a matter of if, but when. Doesn't matter how good you are, or how well you're trained, keeping your place safe, accidents still happen, all that. And we'll we'll spend eight hours maybe doing that at the local school, and then we'll get back to the fire hall and we'll say we don't need writ. And it always just seems so hypocritical to me. It makes me laugh. Well, you know, I, I well, I got a question for you. Um, where's the where is it? It's it's kind of like a rhetorical question, but where is that? that people practice doing the wiki connection 
to transfill a bottle most of the most of the time sitting around the damn kitchen table in the ac yeah. <laughs> and one of the things that we added to our hands-on training is we put them either running up and down stairs or put them for two minutes on a stairmaster and then say okay now make the connection right because yeah. that's re that's reality you you've got i believe in reality training uh for a firefighter and i can tell you with a hundred percent certainty that when those guys mask up and we give them a mayday call that call just became real they're in we created an environment that is so real to them that it's a, it's really the job right we've seen that too jeff um for a few years i was a part of our training cadre in in fairfax and we ran a year-long writ study um and I'll lead you guys into a couple topics here, and then I'm going to jump off, but I'll keep everything running. Um, we started a study in 2016 to look at RIT. Now, fortunately, where I work and where I volunteer, uh, RIT has, since I've been a member starting in 2005, uh, RIT's always been taken fairly seriously. We do assign our original, our first RIT, our I-RIT to the fourth engine company to arrive, but the training has been fairly in-depth overall compared to what I see at a lot of other places. Um, and what I like to, I was thinking the other day, and I kind of wrote these thoughts down about the different generations of RIT that I've noticed. And where you started us off tonight with the two in, two out, that was generation one. and then. Right now, it seems like where we've been for the last few years is generation two, which is that we realize that two to four members is not enough. We need more. That's the data coming from, you know, starting with the Phoenix study and a lot of other um, copycat studies with a few other differences, kind of like uh, the Asheville study and, and that type of stuff. And then there's the third generation writ. And this is, I guess, one of my goals when I went up to training was to take a bigger look at writ having suffered through a, a line of duty death, which was a, a rapid fire event line of duty death. And I noticed that our writ didn't have a way to handle that because we weren't looking at writ in the sense of stopping the problem, but re reacting to the, or, um, not just reacting, but we were looking at writ in this one mindset of uh, finding the firefighter, extricating and packaging and then removing um and when i started thinking about it i was like man a lot of our maydays are not just from trapped firefighters they're from fire behavior they're from rapid fire events and um are we deploying appropriately so we put together a study to look at that and we got a lot of really interesting results from it it's not you know the true scientific study by any means but um it uh i guess uh just to hear your thoughts on on some of those topics i uh totally agree with the mindset uh, if i could regress for a second in the 20 years i spent on incident management teams and out west on fires these guys are really really good understanding incident command and that's where i got some of the best incident command training i think in the world was in the wildland. 
But one of the things that they're not good at is emergencies. Like you show up on scene, you can put a plan together, you can write an IAP, put resources on it and fight a fire. But what happens if a firefighter gets hurt on scene, which there's been some pretty bad incidents for them. And as a, as a group, we started working on something called an incident within an incident and putting plans together. Now, if you're on, on scene of a fire and you get that sudden behavior of fire that's totally off the wall, somebody uh, itself vents or any, anything can happen or somebody has a medical emergency or something, you, and they declare a May Day, is that an incident within an incident? Hmm. Well, Think about that. It is. Because yeah, now I've got two problems. I've got a fire and I've got a downed firefighter. I have right. to figure out what's the most important. Obviously, do I need to fight this aggressive fire that's now changing dynamically that's caused this firefighter to have an issue at the same time rescuing that firefighter? And the one thing that's not done is we, we can write the SOPs, we can write the SOGs on a May day, when to declare it, what you're supposed to do, you know, the three blasts, the air horn and all that, but it, it, you throw that crap out the window when it happens. It's like trying to keep a hundred crickets in a five gallon bucket without a lid. <laughs> because every single firefighter thinks they can do, they can make the rescue of their brother or sister better than the RIT team can. Right. And it's total chaos. And if the guy that's the battalion chief or the company officer that's going to be in charge of an incident, if he doesn't sit down at the kitchen table with his people and actually go over the SOPs and, and give his people an expectation of how he expects them to act, you're going to have total chaos. And how many May Days have come off like that in your experience from what you guys have seen? That's a question thrown back to you. Um, a few, you know, just hearing some audio, but again, hearing the audio, we don't always get that full perspective of what's going on. Um, I'll tell you this for uh, one of the incidents that happened to me is I watched a firefighter flaw, fall through the floor into the basement um, right off the front porch and I called the Mayday on two different channels and nobody heard me. And I was like, what do I do now? <laughs> so I, I ran over to the command post and I said, we had a firefighter fall through the floor. And uh, you know, like you, you start going through these scenarios and you're like, what if, and uh, that day that what if came to, you know, to be real. So um, luckily he was able to self extricate himself out of the basement as the team was showing up to the basement door through the garage, but you know, it happens, but I, I completely agree. I, I think our incident commanders or anybody um, that has an officer rank needs to really sit down and have that conversation with their firefighters. They need to uh, see where people head or uh, people's heads are at because we don't all think the same and we don't all see the same picture. Um, you know, I, we've talked in the past, I like to send um, two two-man teams around the building in opposite ways to do 360s when we go for RIT. So I'll send one, one team around to the left when they get back, 
they'll give us their update. I'll send one around to the right. They'll give us their update. And uh, it's just more perspective. It's more eyes. And then it gets the group talking. Hey, we need to go take care of this. Hey, a ladder needs to go over there. Um, hey, the Bilco door is still not forced. We need to take care of that. So I, I think definitely having that command officer sit down with the team and really go over the game plan is crucial. And we don't do it. Well, let me, let me throw another question towards you. Uh, is when you do RIT training in most departments, okay, who do we train? We train the guys going in the building. Do we really train the infantry commanders? Well, I, I think it's beyond all that. It comes right down to our training again. I was going to say even besides incidents at Parsons, you see it in training. Like a, what I like to do when we do our scenarios uh, in RIT training is I, I do it like a fire. And then I'll, I'll be tapping somebody on the shoulder or uh, telling them they're calling a mayday now. And, and yeah, we're doing a RIT scenario, but you're assigned RIT. You guys are fire attack and you guys are search here's your burn building, go at it. And everyone's kind of like, okay, well, who's going to be patient? Let them get going and then call that mayday. And even then just, it goes out the window and that's in a controlled environment where all of a sudden the guys on search are just beelining it towards the, the host team. They haven't talked to anybody. The other people that are still on the host team are now trying to grab that person and drag them out. The RIT team self-deploying into the building, going totally sideways. There's radio chatter all over the place. And it's like, well, we obviously haven't trained enough like this in these scenarios enough because we don't have the discipline to settle down and, and handle this. Right. And, and it comes down to training again. Like I just don't think when we do RIT training, uh, I had this discussion the other day at work, are we training the RIT team or are we doing rapid intervention training? And I feel like a lot of the time when we do RIT training in departments, um, in my experience talking to people that too is, we do RIT team training where we have three to four people standing outside of a room. We block them out. We send another person into the room and set off their pass alarm and say, respond in. Whereas we don't, we're not focused on training people to rapidly intervene in an emergency from the situation they're in with what they got. We're always just focused on those members standing on the front line and them responding in solo with no help, nothing, uh, with all the equipment, with all that stuff, all the fancy stuff, like you said, uh, Jeff, and instead of just the basics. And we're forgetting that there's everybody else and all the other stuff that still has to happen. Like, I don't know. I'll go back to a comment I made earlier where <clears throat> we were talking about where the problem is, is not advanced firefighter training. You still have to do the basics. And it's the same thing. We're looking at this and not in a holistic way, because uh, as I was saying to James, uh, take a WMD. When the bomb goes off and after every, all the kinetic energy stops, what do you have? You have a, probably a mass casualty incident and a hazmat incident. Have we handled those before? Yes. So it's really not a WMD. It's a MCI and a hazmat incident. Right. Well, we're, we're throwing the wrong mindset at RIT. We're training people to go in and do something that is basic, normal training, okay? Oh. Giving the guy air, uh, converting his harness, knowing your SCBA, how to use it properly, you know? 
that's that's the grid. That's why as right. soon as somebody calls a May Day, you get total chaos because it's foreign to them. Every single time that you do any type of fire training, whether it be just a smoke drill, there should always be writ scenario that somebody has to take charge of, that somebody has to, you know, calm the masses down because it's the only way you're going to get these guys to where it becomes natural, where it becomes instinct to them. Otherwise, we're, we're, we, we've got the wrong mindset. Right. Yeah. Goes back you know, to I, the Tyson quote, uh, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> I, um, I, I, when I teach um, our RIT program for the school, we, um, we hit hard on our officers that they need to really be involved um, with being there, talking on the radio to their crews. Um, the crews inside don't know how much time they've been in there. But like you said, you know, some, some ICs bombard them with, um, with checkups and, and whatnot, or check-ins. And uh, that compounded on a real RIT call is going to be a big problem. So lately we've been hammering to get the IC and the, uh, the officers more involved, whether it's just calling a basic mayday and see how they respond or going through a full-blown incident. So luckily enough for me, my chief of my volunteer house, he teaches with me in the class, and I always put him outside his incident command. And he always asks me, why you got to put me out here? I said, because I need you to train while you're doing this. <laughs> and he gives me the look. But it's beneficial because he was a person that got excited, and now he flows through it. He knows the questions to ask. He knows, you know, to give the guys time, let them think especially when he asks them a question, he lets them figure it out, like air supply, you know, give me an update on your air supply. So the officer inside checks his guys or whatever, and now he, he, he leaves that time for him to do his job and then respond back instead of, hey, I called you, hey, I called you, where are you at, you know? Right. So it, as much as he doesn't like being outside as I see, it, it's very good training for him. And um, like I said, he's, he's taking it very good. He's learned tremendously. So, but more and more, it's it's harder and harder to get the incident command involved. And I think it's one of two reasons: it's they don't know what to do, or they're just embarrassed, or not embarrassed, but they don't want to screw up. You know, and yeah. I, I think that's a one of the the things we need to work on is like, hey, if you screw up, let's talk about it. You know, like you said, stop right there if you can. And, and talk about it so well i'll give you a case history going back to the competition uh one of the departments uh the their incident commander uh during the competition was a battalion chief and okay uh, this goes back about four years ago no three years ago they had a mayday situation uh you know somebody had a equipment malfunction it was Pretty simple, but they declared a May Day, and they, uh, it wasn't a self-rescue. The hose line crew was right basically within 10 feet of the guy. They were able to, you know, make the rescue, which is 99% of the time, that's what's going to happen. But mm -hmm. he came to me, and he said, I want to thank you for one thing, one thing only. In the six years that I've been doing this, 
he says, my skill as an incident commander on a writ have played an important role in making me better because I practice this at least twice a year. And then I've taken it back and I've made the other battalion chiefs train with me on incident command. And that, that to me is one of the, the benefits. We all look at what we do in the competition. It's fun and everything. And uh, as I told you, uh, the guys that compete, they have 362 days looking at our rules, how to figure out how to circumvent them. <laughs> okay, which is typical of a fireman, you know. They'll yeah, don't be firemen if they didn't. Mm -hmm. They'll spend 30 minutes trying to get out of work and if they did the work, it would take 10. But that's, <laughs> that's firemen, you know. So what we try to do in the competition is we are constantly either changing the course or changing, I, I don't mean it in a bad way, but readjusting the rules because we want them to be speedy, but we don't, it, because it is a, a timed event and it is a competition and everything but we want them to get the skills in. Now, for example, what we did last year is when they made it through, they do a, a forcible entry. They've got a, a, a diminishing clearance where it goes from a four foot wide opening down to a 15 inch opening and it's on a 30 degree incline. Wow. Okay. And we use the, uh, a shiny board and we wax it. Okay, and there's no handholds. <laughs> so they're they're sitting basically 15 inches above the ground. So when they get through this 15 inch opening, they've got to sound the floor because they're they're coming out and there's a drop off. So they've got to sound the floor. They come around the corner and there's a spider web of wire that you can't use a pair of scissors. You've got to have a good pair because we used either. Uh, number 12 or number 10 wire. <laughs> so they got to cut through it and it's not, it's like I said, it's a spider web. Once they get through that, then they've got an up down to go over, sounding the floor. They come around the corner and there's a wall breach. Now in our wall breach, it's a double-sided wall. So in other words, there's two pieces of half inch plywood, just like in a real house with a piece of Romex in the middle. And then they got to the victim, package the victim, and then do the Denver drill out. This year, what we did is we put the victim on the other side of the wall breach. So before they got to the wall breach, they found the firefighter. Mm -hmm. So what we added was they now have to package the patient, bring in team two. Team one can breach then they have to bring the mannequin through the wall breach maintaining his mask they can't just drag him through because if they rip the mask off you know that's that's a, a death penalty not only mm -hmm. for the for the guy so we added so we're constantly changing looking at what we're doing and what these guys skills are and trying to make them do more Yeah, nice. I find that wall breach can be a real simple thing to, to wrench, wrench a writ team for sure. That, that little sill and everything else. Oh, well, when we, we created that diminishing clearance, we thought they would, they would screw that up, right? 
they went right. through like a knife through butter. But what really threw everybody was our ball breach originally was just one single piece of drywall. And when we redid it to a double, that, that, that took everybody out of the game. Huh. Really? It took everybody out of the game. Huh. Do you, do you keep it simple, Jeff? Like, is there any insulation in it? No. Or is it just uh, drywall to drywall? Drywall to drywall with a piece of Romex in between. Okay. So, so that, you know, they can't just push the Romex out of the way. They actually physically have to cut. And we've right. had teams go through the wire entanglement and leave their tool. Oh boy! <laughs> and they get to the, the the and then they they find out. See, we also grade them on if they go in the the only thing that they don't have to come out with if they go in, everybody has to have a forcible entry tool. Uh, so one of the teams that goes in, their first one, they could go in e either with the axe or the halligan. The second team has to come in with the other tool that they didn't use and the rip bag. Okay. Now, on the preliminaries, we don't require them to use a rope bag. But on the finals, we require them to use a, a rope bag. Sure, like a, a search line, right? Search line, yes. Okay. You know, the, the three-inch commando search line. Yep. And if they make it out of the building because they have to have all four of them out plus the victim and time doesn't stop until they call a par of five. Okay. If they leave, they get gigged. So our, our competition is designed to where it's time plus. So all their safety infractions add up, you know, it could be a 10 second penalty, could be a 15. So they may run the course in four minutes and get the victim. Right safely they could have six minutes worth of penalties right it's crazy now if a team goes ahead and crosses the threshold of the door and they forget to put their regulator in it's just like a boxing match the judge holds up one finger and he counts to 10 if they did not make any effort to put their regulator back in their mask and go on air they're immediately disqualified Wow. Fair. Okay. If they're crawling along and his regulator pops out, right? We give him 10 seconds because if you were in a fire environment and that were to happen to you, you'd be struggling like all hell to get that <laughs> regulator back in. If they don't, they're disqualified automatically. We Jeez. also, if they're coming in and they've got a, a rip bag with them they're not allowed if they run out of air before they get out if they haven't given air to the victim and they use the rip bag they're disqualified once okay. they give the firefighter air and they're running out of air or they're they get gigged for running out of air or having their their uh, low alarm bell go off or vibrate vibra alert whatever it is in their air pack they get gigged for that but then if they self, you know, or one of their team members, you know, gives them air, then they're good. Right. If they run out of air on the course, they're also disqualified. We had a team this year that actually uh, on the first day, they ran out of air before they got to the victim. The guy uh, struggled mightily on the uh, uh, diminishing clearance, mm. and he just hyperventilated the whole way by the time he got – 40 feet down the 
you know, back and forth through the maze, he was out of there, his, his position. Right. So did, what, uh, what size bottles are they using, Jeff, in your competition? Uh, 40, 45 minute bottles. Okay. Yeah, so pretty standard bottle. Yeah. Now. Yeah. Are they allowed to, like, so the first team goes in, locates, and if they're running out of air, go out, and then second team go in, are the first team allowed to resupply? Uh, once the victim has air, they're not allowed to resupply until uh, the victim I'm, has air. I'm sorry. Once they get out of the course, like, they, you know, they tagged in another, the next team and made contact, and they're out of the course. Are well, they the allowed way that to? We, the, yeah, the way we've got it set up is the first team goes through everything and finds the victim. Their job is to secure the pass device, uh, supply air uh, for five, at least five seconds worth of air, uh, package the patient, and while as soon as they secure the pass device, they should immediately contact the incident commander and he releases team two. When okay. It's team two's responsibility to get the victim out. Right. So team one then goes ahead and breaches the wall, gets the wire, gets everything cleared. They get through the wall breach. They can assist team two in getting the victim through the wall breach. But then their job is to find the secondary means of egress, which is the Denver drill, and they just get out the Denver drill. Once they're out, then we uh, take their present seal off, which is what we're using, so they can see. And as long as they don't take their mask off or take their regulator out, they can reach back in across the plane of the window and uh -huh. assist with the Denver drill. If they take their mask off and they do that, they're automatically disqualified. Okay. So team two's out, then, I mean, team one's out. Team two's bringing the victim out they get the victim up they do the denver drill they get them out then all, everybody gets out and then whoever's in charge of team has to call uh to command that you know everyone is out of the building with a par five that's when time stops right okay. pretty interesting see all the simple little dynamics that go into it you know like we think about it but we don't you know a lot of it's muscle memory sometimes but I'm sure watching as a bystander, you're like this, this, that, this, you know, and start checking off things in your head. And, and that's the beauty of what, uh, because everybody learns that's there, you know, not only the, the participants, but also the spectators. They get to see things and they're like, oh, God, I didn't think of that. Whew, you know, that, you know, we had uh, the conversion harness, you know, converting the harness. Yep. Yeah. I've seen, I've seen so much butchery on that, but, <laughs> uh, you know, but now some guys have, uh, a piece of strap and beaners and it's a clip clip and they're all done, you know? Right. So everybody's gotten better over the eight years that we've been doing this. And that to me is the most important thing. If we could save one firefighter's life, then everything that we're doing for the last eight years is worth all the pain and heartache that we go through to put this on. You know, Absolutely. just save one firefighter's life. That's all it takes. 
Absolutely. Thanks for listening to part A of our interview with Jeff. Uh, we ran out of space, so we moved this into a two-part episode. And you can go right now and listen to part B.